Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. So in this episode, we talk with Professor Maria Holland, who is an assistant professor of aerospace and mechanical engineering at the University of Notre Dame. And we talk about the implications of different properties of the brain and how we can apply biomechanics to study brain growth, such as changes in folding and cortical thickness. And before we get started, we just want to ask that if you enjoy Boom, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us, and just share Boom with someone who you think would enjoy it as well, Because especially this episode. Cause yeah, especially. Especially. We, especially this one. <laughs> Listen to Hannah. <laughs> we are so grateful for our listeners, and we wanted to give a special shout out before we get started to Lauren Lynn, who's an undergraduate student at Northwestern University, and she sent us a really fun note about how her experiences in the class reminded her of Kat Steele's episode, and it turns out that some of the class material was actually from Kat. And Lauren said that she just wanted to let us know that she loves seeing a connection between her class and the podcast, and that really just made our day. So thank you so much, Lauren, for sending us that awesome email. It really made us smile. Yeah, so if you see Boom out in the wild, be sure to let us know. Yeah, drop us a note. We want to hear about it. So in this episode, as we said, we talk a lot about the brain, and we're going to start with some brain anatomy for our bit of boom. 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 So for today's bit of boom, we were just thinking about how sometimes when we like finish an episode, we feel so inspired, but also... Melissa and I are talking about it, and we feel we got a little confused somewhere in the episode because there were some terms being thrown around that we didn't understand, or we're Googling live, Mm -hmm, trying mm -hmm. to understand what's going on, because the people we talk to are experts in their fields and are so excited and enthralled with their work that sometimes they don't realize that we're not all experts. Yeah, exactly. And it's fun to, I think, when we have that knowledge, I think sometimes terms are used, and if we don't understand them, it's easy to get lost. And so we wanted to make sure that things that we perhaps weren't clear on would we would be able to share that with we'd learn from it and share with you ahead of time so that when that comes up in the episode you'll be able to hopefully better stick with us and and kind of understand the deeper things that we're learning there yeah exactly and i know some people listen to a boom while they're walking or biking or commuting or something and it would be dangerous to be looking up these terms while yes so we did a service for you today and (laughs) we looked up some of these terms and definitions and things for you and we're going to start with cortical thickness by giving some background on the cerebral cortex of the brain And the cerebral cortex is the outer surface of the brain, and it's associated with higher level processes such as consciousness, thought, emotion, reasoning, language, and memory. Well, that's it. So just a couple, (laughs) just a couple things, nothing important. (laughs) And cortical thickness actually measures the width of the gray matter of the human cortex. And as we say in the episode, gray matter is sort of the information processing part. And this measure has been shown to correlate with the diagnosis and prognosis of many different neurologic and psychiatric conditions, but it's not 
been widely adapted for clinical routine, likely because there is this challenge of needing an MRI to measure it, and there's potentially not enough baseline data on it to really understand and be able to like understand deviations from it. So it's really exciting, as you'll see in the episode, to see how Maria uses new data sets combined with computational models to try to better understand cortical thickness and its relationship to health. Wow, thanks. I learned so much. Wow, anytime. (laughs) (laughs) She also throws around some other brain anatomy terms like gyri and sulci. Gyri are the ridges or folds in the brain and sulci are grooves or furrows. And she she says this in passing, but I thought it was interesting that I remember learning in sort of a developmental biology class that the brain actually starts sort of smooth and then it it folds Mm -hmm. as we develop. And some animals have smoother brains than others. And we think that could correlate, as I think Maria says in the episode, a little bit with intelligence, but not necessarily in a way that we can super quantitatively with like high resolution describe. And it's not necessarily, like she said, that may be more across species versus mm-hmm. like between Within individuals. Yeah exactly. yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think hopefully that covered some of the brain anatomy that mm-hmm. we'll get into in the episode. We also talk about the NSF Career Award, which Maria won and which we wrote a letter of support for her for. Mm-hmm. which is a young investigator award targeted at early career faculty who have the potential to serve in academic, as academic role models in research and education. Yeah, and also I think the career award is given to those who really lead advances in the mission of their department or organization. It's really competitive, um, like a 14 to 24% funding rate. So it was really awesome to see that Maria won this award and that we could be part of that in writing a letter of support for her and that um, she would come and come on the podcast and share her mission and research as part of that award. So it's really cool to kind of see this all play out finally. Yeah, and you can read more about the specific mechanisms at uh, National Science Foundation Career Award, or by Googling the National Science Foundation Career Award. Yeah, Google it. Google that. We'll add it. We'll add it to the description. Yeah. <laughs> and now we will jump into the interview with Maria. So today we are really excited to be talking with Professor Maria Holland. Maria is the Claire Booth Lucif assistant professor in aerospace and mechanical engineering at the University of Notre Dame. And I'm really happy to have you on as you were also a PhD student in Ellen Cool's lab. Um, While I did my very, I think one of my first (laughs) rotations here as a student at Stanford there, it's really cool to see where you are now. And we are also really happy and honored to be included in your outreach initiative through your NSF Career Award which we found out you were awarded. So that's really exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's very exciting to be sort of full circle, like you said, Melissa, like full circle regarding sort of grad school where we had met at the beginning for you and now maybe you're getting closer to the end. And then, yeah, I'd reached out about the career and after an unsuccessful try, here we are and it was awarded. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here and talk with you guys. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's and it's so great to meet you. I'm sad that I missed you here at Stanford, but excited to be connecting here. <laughs> yeah, and um, your, your voice is very familiar to me from the podcast. Oh. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. We get that like, oh, we recognize your voice, but not your right. face. <laughs> yeah. So nice to 
meet you face to face. As you know, an avid listener, boom, you can guess what our first question is going to be. And our it's a question I love hearing. So when did you first know you wanted to be a biomechanist? Pretty late after I joined my group in graduate school. So, um, so I was not, um, yeah, so I had sort of a, a long and kind of reluctant path, I guess, to biomechanics. So in high school, I really liked physics and calculus, but was really, I, I hated biology. I really hated like sort of the messiness of it, both I think like physically, like getting my hands dirty, but also that <laughs> biology is so complex and And I also hated what felt like the rote memorization of it versus sort of the first principles aspect of like physics and math. So I started out as a as a physics major in college and specifically was not interested in mechanical engineering because I didn't like cars. And that's what I thought mechanical engineering was. (laughs) Cars and trains. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh, my gosh. The engineering book that I now have. Yeah. 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 Like my, my son has these like books that talk about engineers, but they're all about trains. And I'm like, no, this is not. (laughs) Yeah. Was not interested in mechanical engineering, didn't like cars, but then I got involved in the student group that was doing sustainable energy projects in, in China. And I traveled with them a few times um, to work on these, yeah, sustainable energy engineering projects. And I just sort of saw the potential of engineering, like what you could do with it. And that was exciting to me. And it wasn't cars. So I changed my major towards the end of my sophomore year. And then when I was looking at graduate schools, I specifically discounted any lab that had bio, micro or nano in the like in a prefix of their research field. I was just like, nope. (laughs) <laughs> no, I want to be like really like, I don't know, straight solid mechanics. I don't know. Like I like FBA. I like find it a lot. Yeah. The bio stuff. I was like, nope, not that. It, for, for some reason, a lot of people do this, but it's not interesting to me. Not what I want to do. <laughs> and I got to Stanford and I met, um, yeah, so Melissa mentioned Ellen Cool was my PhD advisor. And I reached out to her because I was interested in finite element analysis. And that's what she did. But like with bio applications, and I was like pretty hesitant about that, but um, (laughs) talked to her anyways. And she convinced me, which was very effective for the record. She convinced me that in her lab, I would sort of learn tools and skills that could be applied, like in my PhD, I would apply them to biological questions. But after my PhD, I, I could apply them to anything. And I was like, that sounds good. I can sort of put up with it for a few years. <laughs> Hindsight, man. And she got me started on this on this project sort of related to brain development. And I started working on that. And over time, I think it just really grew on me. So I'm still working in the area. I haven't decided to take those skills elsewhere and apply them elsewhere. And I think now I just have a little bit more mature perspective on biology. But like, the messiness and the complexity is sort of exciting rather than frustrating. Mm-hmm. Like there are yeah. just so many questions and so many things to learn. And I also see sort of the ways in which, I mean, cause I'm, I'm studying biomechanics, not pure biology. And so there are like first principles and some of those things that sort of go into how the body works. It's not what I learned in my sophomore year of high school in biology class, but there there are sort of these 
universal principles and laws and things like that, that that also govern biological systems. So it sort of won me over. Now I'm really enthusiastic about biomechanics, but it, it took me a while. <laughs> yeah, it's so fun to see that change in perspective from mm-hmm. being resistant towards that messiness to now embracing it and being excited by it. I feel like I can definitely relate. I really wasn't interested in biology in high school and thought it was just memorization. Now it's fun to be in the field and really, like you're saying, also applying these mechanical principles to the body in ways that can help people. And yeah. yeah. And I think it's a good lesson of like going from what you know, like working from what you know and like pushing a little bit beyond, a little bit beyond, a little bit beyond. And like Mm. then you don't have to jump right in and love it right away. Like you got to work from your where your first principles were. Yeah, it's it's sort of little steps. And I think the other thing about like from the outside of a field, things can look very different than from the inside. So from the outside, biology looked to me like I don't know, here's a textbook full of like definitions and just memorize what an integrin is and like what a mitochondria is. That's sort of what it felt like. Like these words are made up. Like what are these different things? (laughs) (laughs) It just felt like I didn't have any tools to grab. Like now as a professor, as an instructor, I think of it like I didn't have the scaffolding, right? I didn't have like a place to put this information. It was just like a thousand post-it notes, like all over a wall. Mm -hmm. And like, Mm -hmm. even without the sort of like, crazy like serial killer investigator like string just like just post it now and and so now I'm like okay so I can remember like what actin and myosin are because like I understand their function and so like it makes sense to me that okay I had to sort of learn these two words but like I understand sort of what they're doing and why they're doing that and 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 that sort of stuff so from inside like, like with an expert sort of point of view not that I'm the world's best expert on biology, but it it becomes more like logical and doesn't seem as random mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's so true. I do remember making flashcards for all these different terms, but right? now I'm like, all of these things are integrated together. Yeah. And when you learn that and how they function together and what their purpose is, it just makes so much more sense. And it makes me want to learn it more rather than, yeah, just being frustrated at trying to remember all these flashcards. But yeah. 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 And also I just wanted to give a shout out to Ellen Cool because she was one of, well, the first professor who really supported us in starting National Biomechanics Day at Stanford. And she's an incredible researcher. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first saw her, I knew she was doing incredible work. And then when I first saw her, I saw her like walking in her cow print boots and I was like okay so she's brilliant and cool I think I need to <laughs> yeah we, we called her. it the cool lab like I mean like, by definition, yeah it was, we truly cool was. lab yeah yeah <laughs> could you tell us a little bit more about the current projects that are going on in your lab yeah so basically so from my PhD with Ellen the expertise that I developed is sort of I do computational modeling, so I guess I've still not really bought into the me- the physical messiness of my <laughs> I do the computer stuff. But I do computational modeling of like growth and remodeling processes in soft tissues. And more specifically than that, I've published a few papers sort of mostly as co-authors on like tissues in general, like other tissues, but most of my work now in my lab is focused on the brain and and the development of the brain. So um the Big question I would say that we're trying to understand is how the brain gets its shape. So during gestation, our brains transform from this very small, smooth object. I actually usually have props that I 
show now, but it's a podcast anyways, but they're also in my <laughs> But so from this small, smooth brain around the beginning of the third trimester to around birth and, and of course later in adulthood, our brains are much larger and they're really intricately folded and wrinkled. And so we study the process by which that sort of wrinkled shape takes shape. Neurodevelopment, we call it gyrification or like cortical folding. So that's like the main process that we study. And we study this in in really three main ways. So one, we do finite element simulations of brain growth during development. So we try to sort of recapitulate that process in our simulations. We also analyze brain shapes based on MRI images or some kind of imaging to see how the brain actually looks like sort of quantitatively. And right now we're starting to not look only at humans or look not only at humans, but also at non-human animals, non-human primates and other animals. So to see what actually shape the brain takes, how that might change in, in across different species, across health and disease. The third area that we work on is sort of theory of instabilities, which seems sort of relevant to what I'm talking about. But basically, the brain folding process is is a biological instability. And so we also do sort of some fundamental theoretical work on instabilities that can be applied to the brain, but can also be applied to like other engineering systems or other biological tissues that like wrinkle and fold. That's amazing. Like it's such a diverse set of areas. And also at a scale, I think we, or and on topics we haven't talked about on Boom. So it's really exciting to have you as an expert in these areas. Can you talk a little bit about why you use specific tools, like why pick FEA to do what you're doing? Like, you know, how do you pick the tools that you're using to study these things? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I recently went to a conference and saw people doing like vertex-based tools and and some other things that I am not as familiar with that can also be used to to track the development of biological like soft tissues. I think so finite element analysis, like one of the advantages is that it's just been really well developed in sort of the engineering field for a long time. The sort of disadvantage that goes alongside with that is that FEA was developed for engineering applications. So so the classic like example I always tell people if they aren't familiar with FEA is that if you've ever seen sort of maybe a picture of a car chassis and it's like crumpled or something like that. And they're like red spots and blue spots and green and things like that. Like there's some kind of color map, like you're probably looking at FEA results. So they're using color <laughs> stress concentrations, like, you know, areas of high stress or damage mm-hmm, or something yeah. like that. And so that's sort of the prototypical example of FEA is like, yeah, a car chassis, a bridge, some engineering device made out of engineering materials. We're talking like, steel, aluminum, concrete, these Mm. very hard materials. And that's super different than the brain, which is very, very soft, right? And (laughs) it's nonlinear, it's heterogeneous. So Mm. all of these things that make biological tissues complex, also exciting and challenging, (laughs) yeah, are a challenge to the applications of FEA. So within sort of the Mm. research that we do on like running simulations of brain development, there's also this whole bunch of work that goes into sort of adapting the existing tools of finite element analysis in a way that can serve to model soft tissues. So we develop our own material models that can that can sort of mathematically represent this addition of mass, this addition of volume that soft tissues experience. 
and their their growth like over time, perhaps in response to like some mechanical stimulus or some morphogen concentration or something like that. So it's like the nice thing is that we have a lot of tools, a lot of literature, a lot of expertise sort of in the engineering community to draw upon. But at the same time, we have to do a lot of work to sort of cram this new application of it into this existing sort of body of knowledge. Mm. It's hard too because it's hard to then validate it, right? And whereas I think about a mechanical one or, for example, we used to do FEA of car crashes and then we did the car crash and you can measure everything pretty exact. But with the brain, you can imagine that it's quite different. It's challenging to model the different nonlinearities and the heterogeneity of it, genetic of it, but then it's also hard to validate. Yeah. And especially since I only do the computational work, sometimes I feel I'm like, okay, come on guys, like get the experimental <laughs> stuff up. Like I need more data, right? Um, but it's so difficult. I mean, the brain is so soft. So I, I teach an introduction to biomechanics class. And in the first class, I always tell them a little bit about my research. And I'm like, okay, think of the way that you've tested mechanical properties of something before in some lab or whatever. How would you do that on the brain? If I gave you a brain right now, <laughs> yeah, and, like, you know, actually, how would you do that? <laughs> like, how would you do that? And so, I mean, they're thinking yeah, of like I an instron, right? And like, okay, yeah. but how do you grab on? The brain has a stiffness very close to jello. How do you grab onto jello and pull on it, right? And your instron has like a force resolution of way more than like you're going to, you know, do one increment and it's going to bust your like brain apart. So, so it's super hard. People do nano indentation on special machines that have like really good force resolution. Some people have used like three axis machines. Again, you need to get that, make sure you have force resolution that's relevant there. There's also some work that's been done in like magnetic resonance elastography. So use doing measurements in vivo, basically you vibrate the the brain vibrate ahead very gently and then measure with an MRI how the waves propagate through the tissue and looking at the speed and the phase lag of those waves propagating through the tissue, you can back out some information about the the material properties, but it's super hard. So that's sort of going on the input to our models. We need this kind of data about properties, about heterogeneity, about whatever. And then we run our simulation and we get something out and we have to validate that, right? So mm. so that's one of the reasons that we got into this. Towards the end of my PhD, I got into this analysis of brain morphology, trying to understand like the sort of output of our simulations. They should be something like a brain. And how can we make that comparison and stuff? I remember when I was in the lab, we were all doing scans of our own brains and looking at folding and the shape of the brain. And I can't remember exactly whether it had to do with folding or shape, but there was some hypothesis that it was related to intelligence. And I remember that Ellen Cool had either like the smallest brain or like the least number of folding or something like that. And she was like, well, that one can't be true. Um, but <laughs> that was funny. But so I didn't realize you were there. for. So did you get your brain scanned? Yeah, I did. And I, I built Whoa. a, I think I ended up building a model of my own brain. I don't think I have yours though because I have everybody else's. (laughs) (laughs) No one can Um, have my brain. It It was so tiny. (laughs) (laughs) When we when we got into this, we were like, okay, but we're a computational lab, but we want some data. And so at Stanford, they had 
a bunch of groups. I know I did mine through the economics department. They were doing fMRI scans. So they, I sat in a scanner for a long time and answered questions about like, would I rather have $13 now or $14 and 72 cents in seven weeks and things like that. Well, they like <laughs> the activation like light up in my brain. Yeah. So I did it and they paid me. And then I also said, can I get the data? And so I got the scan of my brain and, and a mm-hmm. bunch of, I think I have 12 brains of sort of like yeah, Ellen, me, lab mates, things like that. And it was just sort of a way to like bootstrap our first analysis, like while mm. I figured out like what to do with this and stuff. I wonder if you were actually at this lab meeting where I, I think I presented some results. If I remember correctly, it was Michael Ortiz who was visiting and he's a professor at, I believe, Caltech. He was visiting and I showed all this data, like the brain volume and the surface area and the gyrification Mm -hmm. index, which is sort of a measure of how folded the brain is and blah, blah, blah. I actually get this question a lot. So I would say that intelligence is sort of related to foldedness on like a species scale. Mm -hmm. If you, if Mm -hmm. I gave you a bunch of animals and asked you to line them up from like smartest to dumbest or whatever, like (laughs) intuition would map sort of roughly onto like foldedness. Okay. So more Mm. intelligent animals have higher folded brains. So like us dolphins, like have really highly folded brains. Yeah. Rabbits don't. Okay. They have almost smooth brains. Mm. Roughly on a species scale. Yes. But I knew this, there's like a lot of other things going on there too. So regarding brain size, I think maybe Ellen's was the smallest, I don't remember, but it's also brain size is proportional to body size. So women tend to have smaller brains. Mm -hmm. And then there's also aging effects. So like Ellen was older than like all of the students that did it. So at this lab meeting, I presented this data, just showed a bunch of data points. Just I was kind of interested in like, okay, if we say, you know, the gyrification index of a human brain is three, does that mean that everybody is like 2.98 to 3.03 or is it like right we're talking like mm-hmm. 2.5 to 3.5 right i wanted to get an idea of like what the spread was like yeah and so michael spoke up and he said i don't think that you're aware of the history behind this and if you were you wouldn't be joking about it in this way and i was really taken aback and he suggested that i read a book called the mismeasure of man um by mm. stephen j Gould. And I did. I'm not sure if either of you are familiar with it. And I really understood like what he was, where he was coming from. And I think it was an important thing for me to be aware of, like working in this field. Basically, Stephen Jay Gould was writing a response to the bell curve, which was this Mm. other book that was making assertions basically about, it's basically a foundation of like scientific racism. So Mm, like what is normal, smaller or less folded brains. Women are not as intelligent as men because they consistently have smaller brains. So it's clear that they can't be trusted Mm. to vote, right? Or, you know, things like that. Yeah. This this has a long, long history, right? This scientific Mm. racism, specifically in this, in the study of the brain. So it was an awkward moment for me to get called out on that, but I think mm. it was it was really formational for me. And and actually a couple of years ago I bought this book for all of my grad students. So we could sort of discuss about it because I think it's, I do get this question a lot. So like, was Einstein's brain more folded and things like that? Mm. And so what I would say is that on a species level, a really gross level, when you're talking about huge changes in folding, yeah, there is sort of some Mm. parallel with uh, foldedness and intelligence, but on like an individual within species level, Mm. I mean, a a real challenge is we also just don't know how to measure intelligence, which is hugely Mm. fraught and like, 
third of that book. So anyways, yeah. that's a little like lesson that I had to learn. And yeah, like I said, a little bit of an uncomfortable way, but I really appreciated him pointing that out to me, that blind spot. And I think that's a great reminder. I, I feel like it is hard when we get like, I mean, I've done that. So you kind of like feel like your foot's in your mouth. But I think it's important, right, to think about these things sensitively. And also like, a, yeah, a reminder about like, science is so human. What are the ethics of what we're doing? You know, what are the implications? How does this affect our identities? Like all of those important questions, as we're getting excited about the data that we're seeing, right? Also, like right. thinking forward. Thank you for sharing that. And thanks for sharing. That's awesome that you share that book with your lab. That's really cool. So switching maybe to a parameter that you guys have found is really important and significant in your biomechanical analyses and is was you know the big subject in your NSF career award talking about cortical thickness and how that relates to to important functions and things like that. Can you just tell us what's known about well what is it? Yeah, what's known yeah. about it and why are we why you know why do we care about it? Yeah, so the cortex is the thin outer layer on the surface of the brain. If you look at an MRI, it's like sort of the darker gray. It's called gray matter also, as opposed to the inner white matter. And I often make the analogy that it's it's sort of the computational power, the processing part of the brain. And so the interior part, the white matter, is like full of cables that connect the different sort of CPUs in our brain. <laughs> the cortex is important in general we have this folded brain because it allows us to pack more cortex, more surface area sort of into the constrained volume of our heads. That's why we have folded brains. Biology, right? All about optimizing <laughs> surface area <laughs> right, volume. Right. It's, it's a huge <laughs> pattern that you see like across biology, right? <laughs> yeah. So cortical thickness, we're looking at the thickness of this layer. So it has this hugely expanded mm. surface area throughout the brain. Cortical thickness, I think is just very interesting. Like we, you know, there've been, um, these allometric studies looking at species across huge ranges of body size. I think I want to say it was six orders of magnitude in body size that we found that, I mean, in a paper, if we didn't find this. And so like surface area and volume change also by like six orders of magnitude and cortical thickness changes by like one. There's clearly some kind of control going on there. Like this is an optimal thickness that we've sort of settled on. I find it interesting that the cortex doesn't vary in thickness much between, let's say, a shrew and an elephant, but it actually varies quite a lot within an individual. So this part of your brain versus that part of your brain versus this part of your brain actually varies like between, I would say like 2.5 to 3.5 would be like even a standard deviation, like a millimeter. But I mean, sorry, yeah, this is in millimeters, but, but, that's, like, yeah. but that's like almost, you know, 50% variation. So it's pretty significant. So variations in cortical thickness are associated with a number of different neurological disorders like epilepsy, schizophrenia, autism spectrum disorder. Yeah, often when people talk about cortical thickness they're talking about like a single like a single number for like your brain. So it's the average of your cortical thickness like across mm. your whole brain. 
But like I said, it actually varies really significantly within a single brain and actually varies in a systemic way. So in these folds, the valleys tend to be much thinner than the the peaks. Hmm. So they're called sulci or the valleys and the peaks are called gyri. And so gyrus are consistently thicker than than sulci. Hmm. And so we showed in a paper towards the end of my PhD that this thickness difference is at least partially caused by the folding forces, like the just the act of folding mm-hmm. the cortex sort of makes the sulci thinner and the gyri thicker. And so mm-hmm. in my career award, we're trying to understand better the role of forces in, in these thickness differences and specifically look at the role of mechanics in these changes in thickness across different species and throughout this really important period of, of human development, like during gestation and the first couple of years of life. Mm. That's so interesting. And I'm curious in your career award too, I think you mentioned that you want to study modified cortical thickness. So removing this effective folding on analyzing and comparing cortical mm-hmm. thickness. We're wondering how you came up with this method and, and what sort of mm-hmm. insights do you hope to gain from taking this approach? Yeah. So the idea behind modified cortical thickness is that if we have we know that there are two things that are contributing to the cortical thickness. Mm-hmm. There's the mechanics of folding, but then there's also like everything biological, right? Cells doing their <laughs> thing, genes doing their thing, cells doing their little ECM thing, right? Like there's there's a yeah. lot going on there biologically, which we believe is probably more important functionally to how the brain mm-hmm. works. Like our for instance, neurons making a lot of a large dendritic arbor. So a lot of connections to other cells that would affect the function and would also like affect presumably like the size of the cortex in that area. So we have these sort of two factors. And if we're biologically or clinically, we'd be interested in one of them. Our goal is to sort of remove, calculate the effect of the mechanics and remove that so we can see only the result of sort of the biological stuff. So we're still working on the details. That's a one of the proposal. <laughs> but yeah, that's the idea is if we can sort of remove that effective folding. And the reason why mm-hmm. that's important and, and the reason why we're looking at these two cases of sort of evolution and development is that evolutionarily, if you want to compare, for instance, a human and a chimpanzee brain, a big question is like, what makes us human? Like, why are we... Right. Mm-hmm. Why are we having this conversation right now and not like <laughs> or, or, in the or whatever? Dolphins. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so if you want to compare these brains and, for instance, find like the seat of of like vocalization and like what you know makes these mm. uh, gives us these abilities or something, you're trying to compare this region of the brain in a human and a chimpanzee. But those regions are differently folded in a human and chimpanzee. So if you want to sort of compare them functionally across different Mm -hmm. folding, then you're going to have this confounding factor of the mechanics of folding. So we want to be able to take that out. And similarly, Mm -hmm. if you're looking at sort of a long development and you want to track the development of cortical thickness in an area, well, it's both developing in the biological sense, but also folding. And so you're going to have, again, that confounding effect of folding. changing your results along the time. And so if we can sort of remove that effect, then we can compare more apples to apples at different times or across different species. So that's the the main idea of my career award. Wow. And how do you remove that effect? So we're trying to use a machine learning approach. So we have 
simulations where we know, I mean, that's the nice thing about simulations is you sort of know everything mm-hmm. involved, right. you know, the inputs and you know the outputs and any kind of output that you want. So running simulations where we know sort of what is happening, like biologically, like volume change, mechanically induced volume change and growth or like morphogen induced. And we can see both the actual thickness that comes out of this and the modified cortical thickness. Um, We can calculate that as well. And so we can train a neural net on these simulations and then apply that to some data from MRIs or some kind of imaging data. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, I feel like Wilson and I have both done a lot of experimental work and like we were talking about the messiness of an experiment and like sort of the beauty of a simulation and advantages of a simulation is that you can do things that you might not be able to do in an experiment. Right. You can just probe from like all different levels at any different time. Like you never have this sort of trade off of like, okay, we have to sacrifice an animal to like get this time point. There's yeah, definitely huge advantages there. Right. And cool that you can look at things like evolution, which you know, we can study using a fossil record or, you know, whatever exists now, but like you can really simulate that timeline or how that might be impacting. Well, we want to like also make sure that we have time to sort of switch gears and talk about your outreach, because I think that really spoke to us. And we really appreciate people that not only are doing amazing research, but are also really passionate about translating that to broader communities, getting other people involved. And that just really shines in your career and and in your work. So yeah, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Like, I know it was a big part of your application, your career application, as Melissa mentioned (laughs) earlier, like you mentioned boom in it. So obviously we Mm -hmm. want to talk about it. But (laughs) um, yeah, what does outreach, what does outreach meant for you? And like, how do you make that part of your, your lab and your life? I think Early on when I got into biomechanics and started studying the brain, I think it was honestly a little bit frustrating for me that a lot of people have this idea of biomechanics as being sort of like whole body motion, like muscles <laughs> and bones, like, and like that is biomechanics. And I opened this door into this world where like everything is biomechanics, right? Like, the, I mean, I get so much surprised when I tell people I'm an engineer studying the brain, you know, and no, like not that kind of engineer, like I'm a mechanical engineer. <laughs> but like, I've like been on papers on the brain, on skin, heart valves. And so like every part of our bodies is interacting mm-hmm. with and experiencing forces. Like, and that's what biomechanics is like, period. So so I just so I got this like glimpse at this like wide world of biomechanics, but I feel like people don't know about it. And so I, when I'm just like walking around in my normal <laughs> life, I mean, especially now as a mom, like oh my gosh, the biomechanics of children and babies is mm. what well, childbirth and pregnancy, like all the way through, has <laughs> been yeah. a wild ride. And there's like so much going on there. And, but people like don't, most people don't think of it as biomechanics. And so when I started to teach this introduction to biomechanics class, I wanted it to be like a buffet. Like I'm going to put out Mm. everything that biomechanics is and you're going to get a little sampling of it and you can go back for more in like whatever area that you really liked. Mm. And so I started this project that I called biomechanics in the wild. And basically I told students, like, I want to prime you to see biomechanics around you. So I want Mm. you to like think about the things that you're interested in and think about like what connection is there to biomechanics. So like some sport that you do or Mm. some 
disease that a family member has been struggling with or like some phenomenon, like why is, is my best friend's hair curly and mine is straight or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's just yeah. so many interesting questions out there. So it took a couple iterations, but we ended up the status of the project as it is now. And this was the basically the education and outreach part of my career proposal to sort of continue mm-hmm. developing this. So students pick a topic that they're interested in and they find some original research papers that are related to that topic to learn about it. And then they have to share that information. So they share it in multiple different formats. So they, they write a technical report for like an expert audience like me, because I think that is of course an important part of science, but it's also important that you can talk with people who do not have a PhD in in engineering. Right. And so we also have a part where they do originally it was just a blog post. Now they can do a podcast episode sort of inspired by you guys or a YouTube video to share this topic with like the general public. So I tell them, you know, nobody who has like a STEM degree. Right. Mm. And so it's just been really cool. I think they get really into it. They really seem to enjoy this like science communication part, definitely much more than the technical report. (laughs) And they've done a really good job with it too. In the Career proposal, I said, basically, I want to sort of continue developing this to give students better training and like engaging with the literature and then communicating that to different audiences. But then the a second benefit is that the public can learn more about biomechanics. So we have, it's, um, I think, sites.nd.edu slash biomechanics in the wild. And we have mm-hmm. like, I think, over 100 short articles. They're like 500 words that are just really cool stories about carnivorous plants and bat flight and how archer fish hunt and figure skating and like ACL Mm. repair. And I mean, just anything you can imagine. So we have that. And then the third part of this outreach proposal is that there's not actually anything that's specific about this idea to biomechanics. I think that probably a lot of fields have similar challenges. Like as an expert, you see your topic everywhere and other people don't see that. So I think that it could, I'd love to expand this to sort of something like STEM in the wild, like with different, in different disciplines, like I think statistics or immunology or nutrition or linear algebra, right? Like the stuff is all around us to help with this sort of twofold aspect of educating students and then educating the public. So I, yeah, had reached out to you guys. You actually wrote a letter of support. Thank you. I'm I'm sure that's why the grant was funded. And uh, I just, you know, I think that Boom is this other, like this really great public facing initiative to like increase awareness of biomechanics. And I just thought there should be some synergy there. Well, could you tell us about uh, shifting gears a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, on that note. (laughs) Okay. Usually we have better transitions. That was perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So one of, I mean, one of the, our favorite questions is to talking about failure. You talked about also not receiving the NSF yeah, career the award the first time, but, you know, going for it again and, and receiving it the next time. So that is really, I think, always mm-hmm. something nice to share that mm-hmm. isn't always shared, but I think makes us feel mm-hmm. <laughs> like... Feel better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> feel more inspired for us to overcome obstacles or oh yeah I mean grant funding is just ripe with failures (laughs) (laughs) yeah well would you be willing to share I don't know if there's any other failures that come to mind but we'd love to learn about sort of an experience of of you feeling like you might have failed and Mm. what you learned from it 
I was preparing for this question and actually I came up with a really great example. So I had a new student start in my lab in 2020, just kind of a mess of a year, right? And on top of that, he started like literally, I think three or four days before I was induced with my son. And so I needed to come up with a project for him. And I was just like, uh, okay, I don't know, look into this, right? When I came back from maternity leave a few months later, like he was showing me the data and it occurred to me, like the question I'd asked him made no sense. I was basically asking (laughs) him to like measure something that we were controlling as an input. (laughs) I I cannot express to you how stupid I felt. I mean, I felt like I, I was very disappointed in myself. Like I felt like I had sort of wasted his time, which was like very weighed very heavily on me and also just like kind of embarrassed it seemed like such a rookie mistake Mm. so I think yeah failure is an unfortunate side effect or happenstance like along the road to often better things so the good news that came out of this is that so he developed in sort of analyzing the simulations that I'd asked him to analyze, he developed some really nice code that we've used since in some other students' projects that are not as meaningless. <laughs> um, so, so the time was not completely wasted. And of course, like he learned things along the way. He right? learned, like right, he of course, yeah. Learned about the project and about the question and about the code and everything like that. Um, but we have been able to use like his actual output from that. And then the other thing is it just got him like really interested in the project and like really interested in these questions he be- ended up becoming the main contributor on this perspective paper that we're hoping to submit actually really this month, which I'm super excited about. So there's this like foundational paper in the field of brain morphology from 1928, 1929, sorry. Actually, he's a Dutch anatomist, neuroanatomist, um, but written in German. And everybody cites this paper. Everybody cites this paper, but like most of us don't speak German. I mean, Ellen Cool actually does, right? But so yeah, there are yeah. some people who probably read it <laughs> and enjoyed it in its entirety, but a lot of us have. <laughs> and so I hired a student. I hired a Notre Dame student. I found a chemical engineering German double major and and paid him to translate this paper. And so we're going to be submitting the full English translation of this paper that you know, a lot of the field has wow. been built on. Wow but I think has been often built on sort of our understanding of the figures, not really the text. And then we're, we wrote an accompanying perspective to sort of explore like what were the ideas at the time that he was responding to and how has that like gone on to influence the field? So he got really just into the question and like really put a lot of work into the perspective paper. So I think it, it turned out well, but I felt like such an idiot. I cannot even describe <laughs> It's hard when it's like someone else's time. I feel like that's also where my main failures feel like, oh no, like it's not just me. Like I don't care if I fail sometimes, but like if it affects someone else, it's, it's, it's hard. So totally. Yeah. And like I can look for the bright side, like, oh, well I learned something from it and like, you know, but when I have to tell him that, Hey, you learned something from my mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Together. (laughs) Yeah, no, but well, thank you for sharing that though. I think, and that also normalizes like even professors make mistakes, you know, like sometimes I think as a student, like you're looking to your professor for all the answers Mm -hmm. and yeah. And sometimes I felt it really refreshed when your professor just says, I don't know. Like, (laughs) and you're like, Okay, thank God, because I don't know. Like, yeah, so so thank you for sharing that. So as we wrap up, I'll just ask, how can people follow you in your work? You mentioned how they can follow biomechanics in the wild, but yeah, what like your 
social media handles, what whatever you can share? Yeah, so I think the best way is my lab website. I have actually a publication page I'm really proud of. I have word clouds for all of our papers. They look pretty cool. Whoa. And also, so on Twitter, I'm not super active, but I'm there, mhala underscore back. Yes! <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, great. Great. We'll share those in the link in the um, in the description of the the episode. (laughs) You just have to take a pause to like, you know, commemorate. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time for our favorite send-off question. Which is, what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? Yeah, I think I'm most excited just for like all of these. I mean, I'm going to put new and unconventional in quotation marks, but like these not sort of the the areas that are not sort of these traditional staples of biomechanics. Like, I mean, I'm, of course, really interested in soft tissues, but like there's so many soft tissues So just these, some of the tissues and organs that people don't think about as being mechanically important or something, two examples of this that I think really capture the idea, mechanics of the lung, like here in year three of a respiratory illness pandemic, the lungs are something that are super important to us, very important mechanically and hugely understudied. So I have a colleague, Mona Eskandari at um, UC Riverside who studies that. And I think it's just so important. And another topic that I think is really interesting and just really exciting. And people have been working in this area for a little while, but it's sort of, I think, taking off more and more every day is reproductive biomechanics. So there's so much going on in the reproductive organs all the time, but especially during pregnancy and delivery and recovery. Those tissues, I mean, are under the most ridiculous mechanical stimulus and constraints like imaginable. And it's fascinating, hugely important to every single person who's been born. And so there's a lot of of good people working on that stuff, but I'm just really interested to see that field develop as it gets maybe more incorporated into like mainstream medicine and, and clinical work and stuff. I think it's just really important work that needs to be done. Yeah. Talk about like us being in awe of biology excited rather like the messiness of biology I feel like development yeah and talk about messiness <laughs> process you're like wow like how yeah it's like but yeah. it's a carefully orchestrated mess somehow yeah <laughs> well thank you for sharing and like I think those are both new answers to that question that we've never had before mm-hmm. so. so you should yeah you should check them out and have some of those people on maybe yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah we will actually yeah that would be great to have those people on and, and just thank you for sharing your experiences and your stories and your journey. It's been such a fun ride and and just so great to yeah to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and and let's definitely keep in touch on this sort of goal of like outreach about biomechanics, but I I think it's so awesome to see you know the cool stories that you guys have shared and the the longevity and success I think that you've had is just really I find very impressive. So Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, it's definitely due to all of our support and then having amazing guests on like you. So yeah, thank you. Wow, that was so fun. It really was. It was. You should have seen Melissa's face, how much fun she had. That was incredible. (laughs) If only, if only the people could see. (laughs) Yeah, we had a lot of fun and now it's time for some more fun with Research Fails. Research Fails. 
Well, I was really proud of you for failing this week. Yeah, I failed in such a nice way. It was really embarrassing, but also great. That's kind of fail. Yeah. So the funny thing was that I sent an email. I accidentally replied all to an email instead of replying just to the person that I wanted to. And that I also was asking that person to kind of do something that they had been delayed on doing. And mm. so I felt like awkward, like, oh, I was calling them out in front of everyone on the chain. <laughs> like, hey, you. Hey, everyone else did the their way, part. <laughs> you single person who I'm talking to everyone about right now. <laughs> exactly. Like, it was clearly, hi, so-and-so, not yeah. hi, all. So, <laughs> so anyway, that was fun. And then I was talking to someone else about this fail and they were like well at least you didn't send it to a listserv with thousands of people on it because i replied all to that <laughs> listserv. yeah so that did that that's make dangerous me feel a little bit i feel like the automatic reply to listservs there should be a are you sure yeah there should be an are you sure and there should also just the automatic one should just go to the person and not everyone yeah i think We've had a lot of drama-rama with listservs. Listserv. I sometimes, wowza, East gets spicy spicy. up in there. And it's not anonymous. These people are just out there. It's not, and they're just adding people left and right, and I'm just like, who has time for this? (laughs) Usually it ends, like, finally with someone being like, hey, everyone needs to be nicer. Anyway, we all get along. <laughs> I know that Hannah's email, I'm sure, was very nice, so it wasn't anything, any real drama, drama, but yeah, no real drama, drama. That's why we should always just be kind yeah. in our messages because we just never, yeah, yeah you never know where it's know gonna go, where it's gonna go, correct, <laughs> and because we just want to be kind. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of never knowing where you're gonna go. I what have, a great transition. This is probably the best transition I've ever had in the history of recording. Um, Hannah and I plan to finish finish recording the rest of this episode one morning last, last week. week. Mm-hmm. And we decide on the time, whatever. We're like, okay, great. I text her that I'm on the way. I get to her house. I let myself in her house as I do because I just don't even bother. Anyone just anymore. come on in. Yeah. Um, so I walk in. I don't hear her. I don't see her. I stroll into the kitchen and she has two new roommates who I have yet to meet yet. They're just, they're just two new people I've never met in my entire life. And I'm just walking through their kitchen quite early in the morning. Yeah. And I text Hannah and I'm like, I'm here. And Hannah's like, I'm at your desk. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, you're not here because I'm at your desk. You're like, I'm actually at your desk though. And I was like, oh okay we are we were gonna record on campus and in the office and i am here in your bedroom the funniest thing was i was tracking melissa because like we have each other's we share each other's locations yeah because yeah be jealous that we're on that level but (laughs) but i was like oh she's almost here like because like it's Going to my house or going to campus are basically was the, the same, same direction. direction. Yeah. So I was like, and I was like, it's really taking her a long time to get <laughs> based on where I last saw oh her location. My golly, that was silly. It was so great. It's so just communicate. 
<laughs> That's the lesson. Moral of the story here is to communicate. Be clear. Be clear. Make sure you know who you're talking yeah. to. Yeah. Add a location in your calendar plans. <laughs> <laughs> and be and, safe out there. Yeah. And then when we do fluff up, we were like, you know what? We can't rush this. It's true. We can't rush this magic. <laughs> we, <laughs> we couldn't rush we that could, magic. We could not. So we rescheduled for a couple of days later. And now we're having a whole night of it. A whole night Going of out it. to dinner. Yeah. Yeah. So it really worked out for the best. It did. The universe knew we needed it. I got to meet your new roommates. Yep. She um, met them now for real again, with me yeah, and for the real. Home. And I was like, hey, it's me again. <laughs> the one who was in, in the kitchen having coffee with you the other morning yeah. without an invitation. <laughs> But no, they loved her. Anyway, so that was yeah. Those those were two two good fails. Yeah, good for us. Yay! Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks so much to Maria Holland for taking the time to be on Boom. And if you enjoyed the interview, if you learned something new from this episode, make sure to let us know. Share it with someone that you think would find value in it too. Yeah, and thank you so so much for listening to the episode. We appreciate your support in every way, but especially just by listening, by making us part of your day. Especially just listening. Thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory, and our man Peter Washington for the amazing music and boom. Yeah, we go like Louie, just Gucci. (laughs) It's part of our vocabulary now. (laughs) And if you want to submit a research fail, someone to interview. Or you just want to get involved, join our growing boom team, email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. And make sure to check out Boom on YouTube as well. (laughs) I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics Biomechanics off our minds. minds.